ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Mick O'Regan is a former ABC Radio journalist. Mick presented several excellent programs on Radio National, including The Media Report and The Sports Factor. Mick left the ABC a while back and more than a few listeners wondered where he'd gone. Well, now we know. Mick had moved to the northern rivers of New South Wales with his wife, Jo, who was a feisty and driven environmental scientist whose nickname was Bolshy Walshy. Mick and Joe had been together for decades and after years of IVF, they had a much longed-for baby boy. In 2011, Mick and Joe were feeling a bit tired, a bit burnt out, and so they decided to take the big overseas holiday. But while they were away, they realised something wasn't quite right with Joe. And then everything changed for Joe, and for Mick as well, as Joe's capacity and her health declined, and Mick became her full-time carer. Hello, Mick. Hello, Richard. Mick, in your early life as a kid, it sounds mm-hmm. like you were one of life's great enthusiasts. Is that right? <laughs> it was. I, I was. Uh, possibly a bit nervously at times, but no, I was. I, I, I traded on um, being enthusiastic, possibly in my parents' and siblings' eyes, a bit too verbose. Uh, but, yeah, definitely wanted to be part of what was going on. In your last year of high school... I'm going to embarrass you here. You were recognised as one of Australia's top kids. Tell me how that came about, Mick. <laughs> so, <laughs> Richard, there we are. The first albatross has been released. So, um, <laughs> uh, in 1976, um, there was a, a competition, I think it may still go, run by a services club, the Lions. And it's, a, it's effectively a public speaking prize, but it has this element of they want people who are, in the old terms, good all-rounders. So, what kind of things would you have to do to compete for the top prize? Well, you had to be nominated by your school. I was in the old lingo, a bit of a try-hard at school, so I was, you know, I was a prefect and I, you know, was uh, in the athletics team. I never quite made the, the A team. I was someone who made the squad but not the team. But I was across a lot of things. I was a debater and I just... It was, it was an area that I felt really comfortable, Richard. It was public speaking, but importantly, an element of it was impromptu speaking where you would be given a topic and asked to speak for a couple of minutes. How were you able to get good at that as a kid? Was there, were you in a family of good talkers? Uh, different talkers. My, I have five sisters and a brother. You know, as my name suggests, I'm from an Irish background. As I'm the third of seven, so the older ones. Regularly, very regularly, at the end of the meal, we would sit and talk with my mother and father. Being articulate, being, uh, being interested in language was really important. And... I think, as my mother once said, if you have five sisters, you learn to debate. (laughs) So what do you remember of the final then when uh, you were up against the other students for the big prize? It was at the Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, There were a couple of thousand people there. I remember being, um, you know, in this... My school in Brisbane had a... This extraordinary green and gold striped blazer that I think people were asking me for Daryl Lee halfway through it. Um, and I can just remember this, this huge crowd and thinking, taking refuge in the unlikelihood that I would win. There were a couple of other boys in that competition who I thought were better than me. And my father was able to come down, which was really great. He wasn't able to stay the whole afternoon, but he was there. And he commented later when they actually announced that I'd won, my whole body jolted. And and for the first time, I had not a word to put together. I had to get up and, and say something, and it was like I was reading from a blank page. Oh, really? A victory speech? You were, you were speechless, were you? Indeed. indeed. And, and it was partly because I didn't... I truly didn't think I'd win. I was, I was very lucky. I mean, for many years, to be blunt, I was sort of embarrassed by it. I, I thought I had been named, I don't know, most middle-class boy in the universe or oh, something. And... That- I think it's delightful. I think it's great. I'd be so proud if you were my kid doing that sort of thing. Yeah, my, my, my late father and my mother were very proud of me, and that, and that was lovely, I have to say. What was first prize? First prize was pretty flash, really. It was uh, seven, nearly eight weeks in Europe. 
Wow, that was yeah. that's that would have cost a fortune back in 1976. Yeah, and, and it was it, it was the first time I'd I'd ever flown overseas. I I, I went overseas before my parents did. Um, I can remember my father showing me how to pack a bag. Um, he, he had gone overseas for work when I think of it now, but he and mum had never travelled. I, I had a little side trip that my family organised for me to go to Ireland. In 1977, Ireland was still regarded by a lot of people as a bit of a hot place to travel because there were the aftermath of the Troubles was still occurring and I did have relatives up near the border but I didn't visit them, I visited my father's family. Uh, but I stayed, uh, I was billeted through Europe uh, with families and I stayed with some extraordinary families. So it was interesting. So when you got back to Australia, you were drawn into student activism. What, what drew you into that? Yeah. Justice. I think justice. I think one of the enduring uh, attributes of my family is is just that notion of justice, and that if you claim some, if you claim to subscribe to an idea, it's kind of meaningless unless you act upon it. And so, uh, my two elder sisters were also very important in my formation. They were feminists. They were involved with First Nations solidarity. They were people who. Uh, imbued me with a sense that you have to acknowledge your own privilege and, and do something, work to help people who haven't had the advantages that you've had. So in the mid-80s, you went to Nicaragua, which was a big cause back in the day. There was, was a yep. Sandinista government and yep. that was opposed by US foreign policy under the Reagan administration at the time. Yep. What did you go to Nicaragua to do? I went as part of a, um, a work brigade, and I really want to stress here, uh, it, no one carried a gun. Like, we went, we went to Nicaragua to pick coffee, uh, to meet people, to support a very small community that hosted us, and that meant things like helping them dig ditches for sanitation or helping them get vegetable gardens happening. And well, I, was... I have to ask, Nick, as a, as a nice boy from Brisbane, did you know anything about that, what it was like to live like a Nicaraguan peasant, picking coffee, digging ditches and the like? <laughs> no, no, not a lot. Though it had been in a couple of pretty grim student households where, <laughs> where we might have come close. No, no, and, and I, so just to, to give you one sort of step back, it was at Queensland Uni where I went and did, um, I initially did law, I didn't pass law, I switched to, to politics and journalism. And then I had encountered with a really influential um, lecturer, uh, uh, Dan O'Neill, and and he had been very involved with Chile solidarity. And 83 was going to be the 10th anniversary of the coup against Salvador Allende. And I'd got to know Dan. Uh, I found him inspirational. And he suggested to me that maybe I could help him and some other people invigorate the Chile Solidarity Committee. And uh, I was reading, reading more and more about colonialism, about the impact of, of what had happened not only in Australia with First Nations people, but with the Spanish and the Portuguese in, in Latin America. And it just it blossomed from there. I met people who I found inspiring. I met ordinary uh, South Americans who were unbelievably ordinary but had been exposed to this extraordinary experience of a, of a dictatorship and I, again, it, it, it was a feeling as though, don't just stand there, do something. So what was the work like, picking coffee? Really hard. Really hard. Um, and, and we were not very good at it. As, a, as a, I was in my, you know, mid to late 20s, and they, they had the, you pick and fill these tins called latas, which is like a kero tin. And uh, I could pick about three or four, an eight or nine-year-old could pick about ten, <laughs> like a local, like they were. It, it's, it's, it's not difficult, but it's tricky because there's red and green beans on the branch and you only have to pick the, um, the red beans and you, you get better. So what they tended to send us into was the less... Uh, valuable areas where, you know, it's basically, you know, cutting the grass along the fence kind of thing. You know, that the, these are areas that they may not have done, but given that they had a group of gringos there. <laughs> so, but, and look, it was fun. It was, it was really great group of people. Um, it was hard. It was really sweaty, hot, hard work. So that's where you met the woman who was to become your wife, Jo Walsh. What do you remember about meeting Jo there? Oh, everything, literally. It's, it's vivid in my mind. Jo had gone two weeks ahead to Nicaragua because she was the coordinator of this group of 30 people. And she'd gone to set up meetings with, you know, trade union people and to try and, you know, desperately try to meet some low-ranking Sandinista official who might, you know, bless us with his or her company. Anyway, so she was there. And so we arrived uh, late December and when you got to Nicaragua, to the airport, you had to change $100 US into the local cu currency, Cordobas, and the inflation rate meant you sort of got a bucket of notes for, for $100 US. So rather than 
all these individuals going to the, the cash counter, you, you, you choose one person. And my Spanish was, it was kind of somewhere near functional, a million miles from fluent. And I said, look, I'll go and do it. So I went and got this kind of, you know, buckets loads of, of local currency, but it meant I was the last person through. And I can tell you, as I sit here and remember, I can see Joe. I can see everything about her. I can see her her hair, her eyes, her smile, her, the top she was wearing, the dress she had on, the skirt, the, the faux cowskin loafers that she was wearing. And I remember the very first thing she said, because I was the last one through, and then she looked at me and smiled and said, are we ready then? And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, I think so. I was absolutely struck by her. Can you explain why she was so striking? There was something... Um, it's really hard and, it, and it's slightly emotional. There's some fabulous quality of, of confidence and fragility, of, of, of humility and enthusiasm. Um, there was this welcome to her, this so unpretentious, so this beautiful, generous smile and extraordinary green eyes. Um, uh, look, you know, as my son once said to me laughingly that the only reason I got to marry Joe was because I went to the play, a place where the odds were better for me. <laughs> if, I'd met, if I'd met her in Sydney, she wouldn't have looked twice at me. Um, kids, kids are harsh like that, aren't oh, they? Oh, no, brutally frank. <laughs> and and, and I, I just, um, I found her incredibly impressive. I, I loved that she welcomed us all. She told us how excited she was that we're here, that, you know, she knew all of us from the, from the little newsletter that had gone out. For, I, I'd known her for a year as a signature, Jay Walsh. Um, I, you know, I didn't even know initially whether Jay Walsh was John Walsh or Joanne Walsh. Um, but there, there she was. And I, I can just remember thinking, wow, you're, you're... To be blunt, I thought she was gorgeous. When you get the thunderbolt like that, it's very frightening because you think, well... I have to do something about this now. Could you, was she interested in anything romantic with you at that time? No, no. And, and, and look, it was funny. I have to say it was quite a comradely environment. Um, I mean, the, the men who went there, I think, were men who were probably, you know, could hold their own in a, in a, in a conversation about women's rights. It wasn't a collection of alpha males, if that makes sense. And I think that there was this um, uh, civility that we had. But I do remember one conversation. So because my Spanish was just maybe a, a tick above the average, Joe said to me, would I come with her on one of the first days where we were settled into this place near a place called Matagalpa to go in to get supplies? And to take someone with no Spanish would have just doubled her workload. So she said to me, will you come? And we had, we travelled everywhere in the back of trucks. There were no, there were no taxis or or um, buses. So you all, everyone was travelling around the back of the open back of these trucks. I remember sitting with her and we got, you know, in that sort of circling way, that kind of um, uh, initial sounding each other out. And I, I asked her straight up, I said, oh, so, you know, uh, are you single? And she smiled at me. She said, no, no, I, I've been in a, in a relationship for nearly 10 years. And I can truly remember thinking, yeah, that'd be right. You know, I thought, because I was single and, um, and had been for a while, I just thought, yeah, of course you're not single. Who, you know, who am I kidding? But, but the good thing was, Richard, it drained, it sort of drained the tension from it. So I just, you know, I realised she was, she had a partner and she was here and he was back in Sydney. And oh, that, so you could just be friends then? We could, and, and it made it much easier. And uh. I think it, it, it took a lot of the, I just was, could relax into the daggy person I am. So tell me then about the night you went out dancing with her in Nicaragua. <laughs> so, so that was the end. And look, we we had got on, and and I, you know, I had made her laugh, and and um, and she was fun. Joe was fun and formidable. Um, uh, you know, her nickname was Bolshy Walshy, and and she earned every every syllable of it. And um, she was, you know, she was a formidable person, incredible intellect, very good Spanish. Um, had had chosen to do agricultural science to have a set of skills that she could then take either to First Nations communities in Australia or to developing nations communities to help them, you know, grow better food, have better soil, have cleaner water. So the, the brigade had finished and people had you know, gone either back to Australia or travelled on. And I was staying for another couple of months in Nicaragua with some other friends. And so Joe and I ended up in the same pension 
separate rooms. But she came and said to me, she said, look, this is the last night or one of my last nights. Do you want to come out? There's a, a kind of Afrobeat club, believe it or not, in, in Nicaragua. So we went out and I like to dance. Not that I'm very good at it, but I really like to dance. And she was, she was a good dancer. And we went out and we had a really terrific night of dancing and, and drinking mojitos. Anyway, we got back beyond the, the deadline for the pension because they used to lock them up. And Joe said to me, okay, the strategy is we'll go and go up to the one decent hotel, the Intercontinental in Managua, and basically using a bit of, you know, white privilege, to be honest, to be able to walk in. Oh, just breeze in, right. She literally turned to me and she said, act as if you're staying here. Don't look around as though you've never been in, in this hotel before. Anyway, we made our way out to the pool and there were these banana lounges, but it'd been a huge day. And so we sat and we chatted and stuff. And then <laughs> to my, to, to infamy, I fell asleep. You didn't make your move on the banana no. lounge? <laughs> no, no. You're on banana lounges and you didn't make your move, Mick? No. no. Wow. And so indeed, so much so that it became the, the source of many, <laughs> of many jokes about, about whether I'd fully worked out my sexuality. And do you think, do you think she wanted to, you to make a move that night? Did she ever I say did. that? I, she did. She did. <laughs> Uh, after the, the, the missed moment on the banana lounge, is mm. there, what, what happened when Joe got back to Australia to her boyfriend? Well, her boyfriend had met someone. Uh, he had basically taken up with a new partner and they, they married um, some months later. So, so Joe had got back uh, and to be met by friends who said to her, you're coming to our place. And she was sort of, you know, what? Why am I coming to your place? And she basically had the news broken to her on her return at the airport. And, and I know from many conversations with her about it, it was devastating. Jo had, has a remarkable community of friends. She was a great friend in the way she invested in friendship. Anyway, they cared for her. She spent some time with some really great friends. But what about you, Mick? Were you out of the picture? Were you still in South America somewhere? Uh, no, I was in South America for a year. And so what I'd done, Richard, is I'd given Jo... Jo was the only person that I'd given a rough itinerary to. Because I said to her, you know, I, I, I would love you to stay... I'd love to stay in contact with you. Um, I said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing when I get back, uh, but it would be really great. I said, I think I'll be you know, in Colombia by April, I'll be in Peru by July, I'll be in Chile by October. So I how could this... you keep in touch under those circumstances? Well, letters. There was a, a thing called Post Restant. Post Restant. That was so romantic, Post Restant, was. wasn't it? It was. And you went to the mm. post office and you gave them your passport and, and they and sometimes there were a dozen letters and your heart raced and sometimes there were none and you felt like you had a toothache. That's right. Um, People could just write to you, care of yeah, the post office. Care of po Mick O'Regan, care of Post Restant, Lima, Peru. Wow. Um, um, so that's that's when I learned that this is what had happened. And I remember the letter where she basically, I still have it, where she explained that she'd got back to this incredibly dull surprise and had gone through turmoil and and was relying hugely on the love of her friends to, and you know. And, she, and was she <laughs> flirting it. with you through the letters? Yeah, I think a bit. And I, I was, yeah, she was. There was one very funny letter that she wrote because... I stayed with this uh, dear friend of mine who at that point was actually a priest, but a very um, uh, politically active priest. Who oh, this liberation theology era. Exactly, right. exactly. And, and um, Brian and um, another of the priests shared a little house and they had a spare room, which was why I could stay with them. But it was basically in a slum on the edge of Lima. And I remember going to the, the post restaurant at Lima and there were four letters from Joe. And I couldn't read them there. I was too excited. So I went back in, in Brian's tiny little house and I, I started to read this letter and I laughed out loud. And Brian just sort of looked at me and said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, if you're going to read in public and laugh out loud, you're going to share what you just read. And I said, oh, no, I don't think I can. He said, you have to. And what Joe had written, she used to call me Miguelito, and she said, um, you know, querida Miguelito, dear Mick, um, by now I think you'll be at Brian's place in Lima. Um, I get worried that a, a lapsed Catholic boy like you might be influenced staying with priests. My advice is to keep thinking about sex. <laughs> and, you know, I said to her years later, you know, I thought from then on I thought of nothing else. Um, how, could, how could you be uncertain that she was flirting with you? I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah, that was pretty straightforward. Pretty yeah. straightforward. So yeah. what happened when you got back to Australia? Oh, it was gorgeous. It was really gorgeous. She had this fantastic... Um, uh, old, she rented with a very, very dear friend of hers who's now a kind of famous photographer, but um, this place in Bondi Beach. And 
And that was the joke Joe had said to me because I I'd been living in Melbourne, working in Melbourne before I, I left, and she had said to me, "If you want to ever, if you want to stay in." Uh, a couple of nights in Sydney before you head back to Melbourne, you should feel free. Flirt, well, you know, flirt, flirt, flirt. Well, flirt. indeed, indeed. Yeah. And, I, and that, you know, 35 years later. Um, and so I stayed there and that was really, that was so much fun because I was on this bed in the spare room. And again, I'm, you know, obviously timidity is an issue that I have to overcome. But uh, the second or third night, uh, or the second night, I think, uh, we'd had this really nice night, a bottle of wine, you know, her friend had gone out and stuff. And I said something like to Joe, I said, oh, well, I better... I better head off. Um, and she just <laughs> raised one eyebrow and she said to me, really? <laughs> and that was the beginning. That was the, that was the beginning of this beautiful, uh, you know, it was a ro- like every marriage. I had a long marriage and it was a roller coaster. So you got married. Did you like being married? I loved being married, truly. When, I got, when we got married in 88, Richard, it wasn't fashionable to get married. And there was something, look, I'm the product of a really happy marriage. My father bless him, died a long time ago, nearly 30 years ago. But he and my mother, I think, had a marriage that I deeply admired. I partly deeply admired of it in the way they prioritised their relationship. And then there were the kids, but their relationship was the, the central focus of our family life. And um, uh, my father showed great care and love for my mother. And I, I know, I didn't realise at the time how influential it was in my own practice, but I do now. And I didn't emulate them as much as I wished I could have. I want to be honest about that. But um, I loved the public declaratory nature of, of saying in public that I wanted this person to be my life partner. I wanted my big family to see what a wonderful choice I had made and, and how lucky I was to have been chosen. My mother declared um, in a kind of voice that she didn't want to be overheard at my wedding, that, that she's the best thing that ever happened to that boy. Mm. Um, and we got married in a, in a backyard, my sister-in-law's backyard in Redfern in Sydney. And when we were pronounced, you know, wife and husband, um, the crowd cheered as if someone had scored a goal at football. <laughs> and there's this really fantastic photograph. Of, of the wedding party looking gobsmacked because it was this, this cheer went up um, in this backyard. So you got a job at the ABC eventually and she yep. was, she'd finished her degree as an environmental scientist and went on to become an expert in the field. Yep. You wanted kids, but how tough was it to have kids for the time? Oh, very, very tough, very tough. And how long and, did it take to happen though? Oh, 10 years. Um, uh, Joe had some particular issues that had arisen and she could produce viable eggs, I could produce viable sperm. The obstetrician once told us, you guys just have a transport problem. Um, and so we were apparently tailor-made for IVF. Uh, and IVF in the 90s when we were doing it was very tough on women. Joe went to have, had to have daily injections. But we couldn't get the, the fertilised eggs to stick. That was the issue. We could get them fertilised, but we couldn't get them to stick. And then I worried, Richard, that the failure of IVF would be a huge problem in our relationship. We'd seen other friends go through very tough times. And I said, look, I think we should give up because there's so many children in the world, you know, that need care and love and support. You don't have to biologically be linked to them. You can just, you know, engage. There's children everywhere that need love. love. And she looked at me and she said, no, no, I want one more go. Well, you know, one more goes out there getting another tattoo as we speak probably. Yeah. That one worked. The last go. The, the, last, very the last, last go. go. The last go. Yeah, well, yeah. What was it like to have this much longed for child? That was extraordinary. And well, for, interestingly for me, because we resolutely didn't want to know. We didn't want to know the gender of the child. And so I had two children in my mind, um, my son, Vincent, and my daughter, Grace. And through Joe's pregnancy, which happily was a wonderful pregnancy, I had these two two children almost in my mind. And when Vin was born and I saw him, it, I had to farewell Grace. It was funny. And then I, I told Jo about that and she said to me, that's, that's a bloke thing. You, you, you were imagining the fully-fledged child. She said, I was feeling the growing presence. It was this whole... She, for her, it was an organic process. For me, it was an idealised process. So you moved up to the Northern Rivers of New South Wales and you mm. were able to get work again for ABC Radio National yep. and you became producer, presenter of the, the excellent media report, which I greatly missed just quietly. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Your, your wife, Jo, was starting up her own uh, environmental business. She was doing very well for it. So, so let's just fast forward now. 
all yep. the way to 2011 when you decided to take some long service leave. Tell me about yep. this big holiday you and Joe had planned in 2011. Oh, it was wonderful. And it was the, the, really the, the big holiday of our married life. We went to Spain and Italy, uh, Turkey and Morocco. And how was um, Joe on the trip? Things happened on the trip that I couldn't explain. Uh, one is, in as people would be familiar, in, in metro, in, in, in railway carriages, there's a sort of schematic map that shows the alignment of the stations. And we were in Barcelona. And night after night, Joe kept saying to me, is this our stop? And I thought to myself, no, surely you can see that this isn't our stop. And I would point up to the, the little map on the you know, in the, in the carriage. And I'd say, look, we're here. We've got three more stops. And, and then she did it again. And I actually thought she was having, having a lend of me. I thought she was deciding to every night she would kind of annoy me by saying, is this our stop? A bit like, you know, kids in the car saying, are we there yet? And the other thing she couldn't work was an ATM. And, and I didn't, and I put it down to tiredness. And, you know, sometimes when you go on holidays, your body goes, aha, now you're relaxing. I'm going to get you. Um, and I thought maybe, maybe it was that. But there was this odd um, lack of organisational excellence. Joe, Joe was so good at planning. She was so good. You know, I was, I was the one, the flaky one who would never find his car keys and, you know, um, and she, she just had this capacity to plan things out and to kind of be in, be in control of processes. So she really wasn't quite herself then? No, and, and this is the thing that emerged, that, that she wasn't quite herself. And it was, the, now I understand what was happening. Now I understand that there were particular things that she couldn't, that she was starting not to be able to do, but there were flares that were going up that I couldn't see. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Mick, when you got back from your holiday, she still wasn't mm. feeling herself. What was the initial diagnosis from her doctor? Well, her doctor, who, who was very important in this process, basically acknowledged Jo was of an age, she was in her early 50s, that menopause was an issue and, and basically confusion and a bit of irritability, a bit of lack of confidence, a general kind of feeling of unwellness was understandably diagnosed as part of a difficult menopausal transition. It's a pretty plausible explanation, isn't it? Completely, completely. And the woman, the the doctor, who's a friend of mine that Joe went to see, is specialised in women's health. And I I say that just because it makes complete sense that dealing with a woman of menopausal age with these symptoms so, so fitted what the doctor would be looking to ameliorate. And the reality was, of course, exactly those symptoms camouflaged the much deeper pathology of dementia, of, yeah. of younger onset dementia. You were with her every day yep. and you, you might have missed the changes in some ways, but what about friends who were sort of seeing her more intermittently? Were they noticing changes? Well, that's the big thing, Richard. You're exactly right what you said. So, and I, and I realised in retrospect that I was covering the spaces. So as Joe's language began to falter, I would, as lots of long-term married couples do, you know, you kind of finish each other's sentences and... And there's an understanding of what the person's saying, so you, you kind of guess the end of the sentence. But what happened is, interestingly, was a woman, a dear friend of ours who we'd spent time with in Nicaragua 25 years earlier, who came out to Australia to attend the wedding of a friend's daughter and was near where we were living in the North Coast. And Julie said to me when I drove her home after dinner, she, she asked me to pull over and she said, Mick, I need to talk to you about Joe." I said, what? She said, I think Joe may have had a stroke. And I was completely gobsmacked. And she said, when I was out at the table with her when you were cooking, her, her conversation it was, not, was not sensible. It was not coherent. And then that was corroborated by Joe's very, very significant elder sister who had gone with Joe 
to sort out their father's documents after his death, all his probate stuff. And her sister rang me in. She said, you know, what, what's going on with Joe? She was useless today. And then the third one was one of my sisters and her partner went out to have lunch with Joe. And my sister rang and said, is Joe not well? And suddenly, Richard, there was this alignment of external views through me completely. Isn't it funny how you can be in a marriage for all that time and you get so close, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. You sort of, exactly. you're so close, you can't stand back from that other person to, without a, a great deal of psychological effort. So, so, so where did you go for a different assessment there? Well, what happened is that uh, we had a, a, an amazing piece of luck and, and huge generosity. A, a dear friend of mine is a clinical psychologist. He studied at Oxford in the, in the 80s. And a great friend of his from Oxford is one of Australia's leading neuropsychologists who practice in Macquarie Street in Sydney. And so our friend basically not only contacted his old Oxford buddy, but also organised flights down to Sydney. And the doctor took time off on a weekend to come in. And he did the first big three and a half hour neuropsychological test on Joe that people may be familiar with. It's a huge range of things. Like, for example, one of one of the tests is just a, an empty circle in which you're asked to, to draw on, as if it's a clock face, what nine o'clock would look like. And um, to be blunt, it was devastating how poorly Joe did. And it was that doctor's report, whether it was the first time that I saw the words younger onset dementia. What's the clinical name for what she had? The clinical name for what Joe had was posterior cortical atrophy. What does and, it mean? What does that well, mean? It, well, here's the thing, and, I, and I'm, I won't pretend to have the medical knowledge, but it's either a variant of Alzheimer's or it's a different type of dementia. But the critical difference is it starts at the back of the brain. And, and so it has this terrible double-edged sword that people with PCA are aware longer of what's happening to them. Joe was aware of her own diminution, her own falling cognition for longer than a person with frontal cortex Alzheimer would be. And you're talking about a woman who was famously formidable, cogent, yep. well-organised. Yep. How did she take this news? Oh, such a combination, Richard. Huge sadness, great resolve, a lack of self-pity that I, I still am flabbergasted by. The last really cogent thing, and by cogent I mean where Joe made an observation and drew a conclusion, she had diminished noticeably. She'd lost the ability to read because that's one of the things with PCA. It's the vision processing. It's not your eyeballs that are the problem. It's how your, your brain at the back of your brain interprets and understands the visual signals, the stimuli that are coming from your eyes. And we were in the bathroom and I was helping her with her, you know, bathing and toileting and stuff. And with this big sigh, she said to me that her life was like a window that kept fogging up, but she couldn't clean. And then she turned to me and she said, I'm going to die young, aren't I? And even now I find it very, um, very difficult because there was, there was this terrible understanding that she had that she had a terminal illness and that she knew enough about things to know that dementia is not a curable disease. Nick, how did you arrive at the decision that you would be her primary full-time carer? Instantly. I knew, immediately I knew that she had to be cared for, that I was the one who would care for her. And I suppose the aftermath of that decision was when the realities of of income loss, of career cessation, of of the closing down of your life. Dementia, both people lose their independence. And, and how you then deal with that, where you go with that, is what was the fundamental choice that I made. And what were you aiming for with her care? What were you trying to maintain as she was slowly, or not so slowly, declining? Her dignity and the quality of her life. And, and who she was. I went to see Joe every day. I looked after her when she went into care. I went every day, more or less. It had to be something big that I couldn't go to see her. And someone said to me, why, why do you go when, 
she doesn't know who you are. And the answer, of course, is that I know who she is. And she's Jo Walsh. And she became Jojo in the last couple of years of her life, which is beautiful, and it was a family name from her nieces. But I only ever called her Juana, which was the name I knew her by in Latin America. She became Jojo, but Jojo was a diminished version of Jo Walsh. And Jo Walsh is Jo Walsh, and she will be forever. What was your daily ritual with her like as you were her carer? Well, we talked about a rhythm. We, we, we got away from a routine. There are things that you just need to do with people with dementia. You never give them options. Choice for people with dementia, it becomes terrifying because they can't discriminate between a mundane, everyday decision and a really important decision. Every decision creates anxiety. So it took about three hours to get Jo ready for the days that she had respite care. She went to a respite care centre, which was truly a wonderful place, run by wonderful people. Uh, sleeping was difficult. Towards in the depth of her illness, she would get up 10, 12, 15 times a night thinking that she needed to go to the toilet. Um, but we would get up, we would get her toileted, showered, dressed, breakfast, and, and everything happened slowly. Everything had rhythm but not routine. Every, everything was aimed at creating an environment where Joe could gently go forward without being stressed. It didn't always work. I'm not trying to say that I always got it right. But that was the objective. You live in a very pretty part of the world, the Northern Rivers part of mm-hmm. New South Wales. Could you mm. could you take her on walks through the natural world? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, indeed. The two things that the, the specialist had said to me when Joe was diagnosed, after explaining there's no there's no cure, but there's practice. And this is the thing. Our, our practice became so important. One thing one thing was social interaction, and the second thing was exercise, physical exercise. And the exercise that we did primarily, we were able to get down to a a coastal walk up to a lighthouse. And we did that every day, pretty much, about 11 o'clock in the morning. And Jo, her whole being, I used to joke that she'd gone from the Renaissance to the Paleolithic, that she'd gone from being in her head to being in her gut. She had this visceral engagement with nature, with tree bark colours of foliage, with birds. She became obsessed by ospreys, which we were lucky enough to regularly see, the pattern of light falling on the ground. But tree bark, for some reason, and I would take photos, sometimes I took the same photo of the same tree every day for years and years because that particular tree she simply loved. She was literally a tree hugger. Was she showing you things in her dementia, showing you how to really look at those things? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think um, if I can just digress one thing, I, I only have one tattoo. My, my beautiful boy has a lot. Um, when Joe was unwell and I said to Vincent, we need to give ourselves a mantra. We, we need a, a guide to inform our practice. And we chose three words. We chose patience, steadfastness and grace. And I have those words in Spanish tattooed on, on, the, on my right forearm. And briefly, the, the patience was not, pati- I'll be patient with you because you're stuffed up. It's more, I'll be patient in the world and my agenda won't be the agenda. I will, I will withdraw to allow space and, and slowness to be part of my experience. Steadfastness was that we would simply never resile from making Joe's interests our primary interests. And that grace was that we would do these things with love. And didn't always work out, honoured in the breach a bit. But broadly, broadly, my son and I and my sister-in-law, importantly, and some other carers, importantly, provided Joe with a, a quality of life and a dignity and joy. It was an expression to lean towards joy. And we tried to adopt that wherever we could. You know, when Joe was at her worst, I used to sometimes say quietly to myself, be kind, be kind, be kind. She wasn't intending to do these things. She wasn't intending to get up 15 times a night. She was unwell. And so I think that Joe helped me discover a patience I never thought that I would experience, a kindness that I felt I had within me but was underdeveloped. In the end, love, love, I think, is a capacity. If you are loved, you can love. And I think she's left me in a situation where 
I'm open to love. Her life imbued my life with gifts that I wasn't expecting, but I now appreciate. Deciding to become a full-time carer is a huge task. What does that mean for money? My God, what were you living on, Mick? Uh, so, you know, not much. Um, but again, I own a house and and it's important that you keep things in perspective. But we went from two totally okay. I mean, you'd be familiar. You have an ABC income. Uh, I had an ABC income. I was a long-term employee of the ABC. I had an income. Jo had her own. Jo had a significantly better income than me. And we went from those two incomes to a disability pension and a carer's pension overnight. Mick, how was the decision made that she had reached a point where she needed more care than you could possibly give her? Uh, it was made for me, but it was the most difficult aspect of the whole process, Richard. In August of 2019, she had the first of two major seizures that completely transformed her ability to speak and her ability to move. And so I was at home with her. Uh, she had got up yet again. It was dawn and I was help, helping her to the bathroom. And as I helped her sit on the toilet seat, there's a wonderful technique that I was shown to help someone bend and lower themselves onto a seat. Her body stiffened and began to convulse uh, wildly. And I, I realised immediately that she was having a seizure. And luckily I'm a fairly big person, a fairly big bloke, and I was able to take her full weight and lower her to the ground uh, very carefully and get a folded up towel underneath her head and grab my mobile, which was not in the same room but close at hand, and ring triple zero and get an ambulance. And it was terrible. It was really scary. And the woman, the calm voice of the woman on the triple zero asking me to count Joe's outbreaths and asking me, were there lights on? It was just dawn. Were there lights on outside that the ambulance could see? And so she then had another big seizure, a little while later. So she had a month in a local hospital. And then one, I was going every day, nine to five in the hospital. And it was very distressing because when I would leave, she would call out in this frightened, anxious voice, you know, call my name. And, and I got there one morning and there was this little group of white coated nurses and doctors in the doorway of the room of the ward Joe was in. And I realized they were waiting for me. And they were the interdisciplinary assessment committee, neurologist and the head of nursing and the head of the ward. And they had made an assessment of Joe that she was high care and that she would need to go into full residential care. And I started to shake. And this woman said to me, are you okay? And I said, no. She said, do you need some time on your own? And I said, I wouldn't mind if that's possible. And, and this is a funny little thing that they, the only place they could have was a linen cupboard. So they, they showed me to this linen cupboard, this big linen cupboard, where I burst into tears. And um, I came out and I always remember the, this very kind senior nurse, a woman, saying to me, she said, look, I know you're upset, but here's what I want to share with you. For, for you to care for Joe now is a risk to, to her health. It's actually, Mick, a risk to your health. You know, you could literally do your back or she could fall on you. Or, But then she said to me, and I never forget it, she said the other thing it runs the risk of is degrading your relationship. She said if Joe goes into care, you can be there to feed her, to read to her, which I did every day. You don't have to be in charge of toileting and lifting and bathing. and You can actually take your relationship to areas of intimacy and and care. And she was 100% right. There is huge intimacy in, in caring for someone that you love, in, in connecting with them, in, in knowing who they are and, and, and cradling their dignity. In, in, there's a great line in a Nick Cave song that I love where he says, um, I think it's called Waiting for You, where he says, I want to go back to the business of making you happy. And I was able to do that. And I read Joe the sonnets and I read her Shakespeare sonnets and I, I read her Mary Oliver's poetry and Ada Lemon's poetry and all the things that we loved. And I saw her every day. What do you remember of her last days? Oh, a great mixture of of sadness and, and in a way, relief. 
if that makes sense. Um, so we knew, so my sister-in-law, who has been profound in this process, said to me that we needed to maybe think through where we were with Joe. She had declined so dramatically in the beginning of this year. And, um, and I sat with my sister-in-law and she, we talked about whether Joe should go on to palliative care. And she expressed to me, you know, that she had a kind of, she's not a religious person at all, and she was worried that, that some kind of residue of Catholicism may make it difficult for me. And it didn't make it difficult for me, but I did know that Joe going on to palliative care was a huge step. And what had happened is she'd lost the ability to swallow. She couldn't swallow food. And that's a key marker. So we made the decision and she went on to just thickened water and, and morphine. And in those last four days, so she, that happened on the Saturday morning and on the Tuesday night she died. But it had been a beautiful day in one way. Uh, uh, her family, who loved her so much, and she loved them. Her sister and her nieces came. My sister, a couple of my sisters came. One of my sisters is very, very close to Joe. My son and his girlfriend came. The friend who she'd shared the house at Bondo with, who's been her friend for 40 years, came. And there was this kind of traffic in and out of her room. There were cups of tea and there was laughter and conversation. And each one of us had a chance just to sit and be with her. Then they left and my son and I and his girlfriend were there. And my son said to me, I want to sit with mum. But I don't want you to sit with me, but I want you to sit outside with the door open. I want you to be close. And that was very poignant because I could hear him speaking and I could hear him crying, but I couldn't hear the actual words. And I have this photo of him, which is like a kind of inverse of Michelangelo's Pietà, where in that wonderful statue, Mary's cradling Christ. In this photo, the son is cradling the mother. And I said to him, you need, you know, you need to go. You're exhausted. You're both exhausted. I'll ring you if anything happens. And my son said to me, if the phone rings, it'll mean mum's dead, won't it? And I said, yeah. And I was sleeping. I'd been sleeping the previous nights by her bed. And so I was getting ready to sort of, and I, I, I heard her, her breathing change. And I knew from a previous experience that with a dear friend of mine that that was, meant death was at hand. And I, I was holding her hand and I, I leant down into her face. I told her that I loved her. That it was okay to go. That she could go. That all of this could end. And I was listening and listening to her breath. Her breath was like fairy breath, these tiny, shallow little breaths. And I said to her, you know, you're so loved. And then I realised that she'd she'd stopped and that her breathing had stopped. And I just lay next to her. And I held her hand. And I told her, told her how grateful I was for everything, for, for the life, for the sun, for her. And then I waited a little while, I don't know how long before I rang the nurse's bell, but I did wait with her, just lay with her. And I thought, oh God, you, you probably, you know, you need to record the hour of death or something. And so I pressed the button. And they came and they were incredibly respectful and the, and the registered nurse, a young man, had a stethoscope and he confirmed Joe had died. And then they discreetly left. And then I lay down again with her, but this, this noise came out of me, this, this howl, kind of, kind of an animal noise. I can hear it resonating now. And then I looked up and then one of the nurses knew, because I'd gone so often, they knew how I had my tea. And there was a cup of wheat black tea on the little table. And I laughed and I said to her, God, you know, service doesn't stop with death. And, and, um, and then I, I, had, I, had, I talked to her and I got a bit angry and I said, you know, this is all a bit stuffed up, Rana. You, you were meant to be here till the bitter end and we were going to do all this shit together. And now look at you, you're dead. 
and I felt incredibly alive. And and then I just um, I rang Vin, and he came, and his girlfriend came, and my sister-in-law came, and my sister came, judiciously bringing an almost empty bottle of whiskey rather than the full one that she could have brought, which was very, very clever. And we toasted Jo and we just acknowledged that her life was over, but but she's going to inform our lives forever. This is the most remarkable love story, Mick. I, I know you're not a religious man, but do you see something miraculous in the transformative and animating power of love after all of this? I do. I do, Richard. Uh, and I, I find that there are elements of love. There's a deep forgiveness in love which I want to take from Joe's forgiveness of me and my shortcomings to apply to myself a bit more often, to be a bit more forgiving in my own life about myself, about not relentlessly letting the demons of self-criticism turn me around as much as they sometimes do. And I also think that love, as I said to you earlier, it's a practice, it's a capacity, it's, it's... by loving me unconditionally, Joe has put me in a position where I can keep loving. I don't want to disappear and hide. I want to engage in the world. I want to make friendships. I want to experience joy and love and, and all those things that in a way honour honor the experiences I've been lucky enough to have. What are you hoping for now in this next chapter of your life, Mick? What am I hoping for? Um, I'm hoping for every good thing to happen to my son. I'm wanting to be, uh, I'm wanting him to have a richness to his life that I know his mother imbued the early part of his life with. I suppose, Richard, uh, like everyone, I'm wanting to, at my mid-60s, to find something I love that I can do, and I'm also wanting to experience the deeper wisdom that's out there. I think about Joe all the time. I feel incredibly grateful. Are your walks through the natural world different now? Yeah, but they're informed by by what I learned. They're informed by slowness. Walking with Joe was the opposite of how I walk now. I walk most mornings, five or six K. I hurry along, I get my heartbeat up and I, my, my phone tells me how many steps I've done and all that stuff. It was Joe's completely different experience. I, I noticed birds and trees and I noticed textures and colours and the way, the way the dawn, now I notice how the dawn colours the day. There, there, are, there are things that, I, that Joe left me that I had no idea that she would leave me and, and so I, I value them. But I, yeah, I'm... I'm wanting to move forward into the next part of my life and bring joy to other people and experience it myself. You've got a bit of wisdom to, of your own to spread around, Mick. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your incredible story. Thank you, Richard. It's been a privilege for me to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.